0: the gifts that these children around the world will open truly contain treasure in their eyes now they may not seem like they're filled with things that we would consider treasure here in america after all we might spend a little bit on a wow present or a little bit on a toy or a little bit on some personal care items or some craft items that that's just extra money that we have we want a car or a house or if it's going to fit inside a shoebox, an iPod, or, or a new phone, something like that. But we understand that when they open those treasures, and they see those physical gifts, it will prime the pump for them to receive the greatest gift, which is the name of the discipleship process that follows all of the gifts that we are giving. This is very, very important, because we need people to understand that the greatest gift, the greatest treasure available to us is Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. But we live in a world where the treasures we seek are not the same things that Jesus offers. Jesus used this this same technique He will meet someone's need in order to explain a spiritual truth. Very often, Jesus would perform a miracle, whether it be raising someone from the dead or healing someone from disease or perhaps feeding thousands of people so that people would be primed to hear the message of God. Every miracle Jesus did was always followed by a message. And this is what the shoeboxes really are. So what we're doing is not a waste of time. It's not just an extra little bit of service that we can do. It's a big deal. It's a big deal because there's a big thing that comes. And it helps us demonstrate our devotion. We live in a world where devotion to God is not highly esteemed. Devotion is a very, very important concept. Devotion is the idea of having a disposition... A drive or a desire for something. Most people, when they hear the word devotion, they understand that that means you're sort of all in for the thing to which you're devoted. And if you are devoted to Jesus Christ, it means sort of being all in for Jesus. It means that our disposition is pointed towards Christ-likeness. And we're gonna do the stuff that Jesus does. It means that our driving force is going to be the compelling love of Christ and the Spirit who teaches us about him. It means that our desires are going to be oriented in such a way as to do what Jesus wants even more than what we might want to do in our own sinful nature. And our text today, out of the book of 1 Timothy, truly emphasizes some of the key aspects of devotion. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn them open to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we start the final chapter of this wonderful epistle today. We'll look at verses 1 through 10. It has been my prayer that through this study of the book of 1 Timothy, we have grown in our knowledge and wisdom about how the church ought to act. The church, which is the church of the living God, the household of God, the pillar and foundation of truth, Everything that we've been pointing towards is how we can better conduct ourselves. And here, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, we see some very clear, distinct items to which we must be devoted. So if you have your Bibles, follow along, and if not, you can follow along the text on the screen behind me. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they're fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth And who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we had food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, this text has an awful lot to say about our devotion. Consider verses 1 and 2, these first two verses about the idea of slavery, and those who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect and should make sure that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. The first thing that we understand is that if we are devoted to Jesus Christ, devotion must be the pillar of our discipleship. If you want discipleship to reign in your life, if you want people to look at how you live and how you operate and say, that is a disciple of Jesus Christ, devotion must be the pillar of that discipleship. For if you are truly devoted to Jesus, you will do the things that Jesus wants. You will be oriented the way Jesus wants to point your life. You will think about the things Jesus compels you to think about. Consider a family, just for a moment. If someone claims to be a family man, if someone claims to be devoted to his family, he can't just up and leave his family then. If a man claims to be devoted to his family, he can't fail to provide for his family. He must work and provide for his family. If a man claims to be devoted to his family, he must invest his time, his effort, his energy, his money into his family so that they can see the repercussions of his involvement. Don't claim to be devoted to your family and then have nothing to do with your family. But there are some who claim devotion to Christ, but they just don't show that devotion. And so the first aspect that we really have to think about when it comes to showing devotion to God is having a devotion to God's glory. God's glory should be a driving factor in everything that we do. When we pray, we should pray things like, God, please be glorified in my life. May you be glorified by what I do and by what I say. And even in the midst of bad circumstances. Now verses one and two, they do talk about slavery, but the slaves who are under the yoke of a master should not treat that master with disrespect so that the name of God and the teachings of Christianity would not be slandered. Devotion to God's glory is achieved through accepting the gospel and by living a life that flows from that gospel, a life of respect a life of hard work and a life of freedom. But it's very hard to demonstrate freedom when you're a slave, and yet even slaves were called to demonstrate devotion to God's glory. Now, slavery is a repugnant practice. Slavery is awful and evil, and it is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that destroys slavery. But the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ emerged in a social setting in which slavery was commonplace. In the first century Rome, the time that the book of First Timothy was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the hand of Paul to Paul's protege Timothy in the town of Ephesus where he was the preacher, there were 60 million slaves in first century Rome. It was very common. And some slaves held privileged positions and were treated very, very well, and other slaves were treated very, very poorly and received horrible abuse heaped on them by their masters. But while the Bible never commanded slavery, it does permit slavery, and it did regulate slavery. But it's the gospel that actually destroys the foundation of slavery. It's true. Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul never called for violent revolution to tear down the institution of slavery. In today's day and age, when we don't like an institution, our first move as a society is to go to violent overthrow and to knock it down oh, we need to rip down these institutions that are no good, and so we seek to maybe violently overthrow them. Jesus never advocated for a violent overthrow of the institution of slavery. Instead, he delivered the gospel, which erodes the foundation of slavery. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel destroys the foundation of slavery because slavery is based on racism, on greed, on class hatred, and the gospel gets rid of, of this idea. It gets rid of racism. It gets rid of class hatred. It gets rid of greed. After i think about what the Apostle Paul says, in Christ there's neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, barbarian nor Scythian, for all are one in Christ. Racism has no place where the gospel goes. In fact, everywhere the gospel goes, racism starts to decrease and the foundation for slavery is eroded. Everywhere the gospel goes, class hatred starts to go away. For it doesn't matter if you have a lot or a little, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who stepped out of heaven and made himself nothing. You see, the gospel, everywhere it goes, it starts to erode the foundation of class hatred. And wherever the gospel goes, the foundation of greed is also eroded. For you heard about it in our communion meditation. The early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching and to prayer, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. And they gave to everyone's need as they saw fit. They would sell property, they would take care of things. In Christianity, where the gospel goes, generosity follows. So it is in fact the gospel and the church where slavery is destroyed. In the first century, it would not have been uncommon for there to be a slave and a master who were both Christian, and they would go to church together. And think about how weird this would have been. A slave might have spiritual authority over his master as an elder in the church, even though he's under the societal boot of his master. The church is upside down and backwards compared to the world. It's where these things happen that slavery can no longer take hold. Radical thinking may be an offense to some, but it destroys the evil foundations of slavery. And so we live in a society where slavery is not commonplace in the Western world, though slavery still exists in this world. We see it in different parts of the world, and there is slavery that still exists. How is it that Christians are supposed to live in a world that can bring glory to God even when we have to work so hard? Well, it's precisely out of lives of hard work and respect that demonstrate God's name is lifted high. When we have a strong work ethic, God's name and Christ's teaching are not slandered. Whether we are Christian slaves or workers, there are always people watching how we live. When you claim to be devoted to Jesus, people will watch you because they want to make sure that the messenger lines up with the message. And if the messenger is no good, sometimes people don't listen to the message itself. We must never live our lives in such a way that gives people opportunity to slander God to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we must live lives of respect and of hard work. And just because uh, we have a master or a boss who's also a Christian, that's no reason for us to look for entitlement and look for easy street. No, no, no. That's all the more reason to work even harder, to work even better, as unto the Lord, so that people may see our good deeds and praise God, so that people may see our our work ethic and praise God. Now, work ethic is a really, really big deal. My dad taught me that I had to have a good work ethic. He taught me to be thankful, and he taught me to have a good work ethic. And when I was at Bible college in Joplin, I had to have a good work ethic because I had to pay for college. And so I worked at the movie theater on weekends, and after I got married, I started a job at this company called Easy Living. But don't be fooled. Easy living was not for the person working there. The person working there was supposed to work hard. It was supposed to make life a little bit easier for your clients. And it was a special needs, in-home health care kind of thing. So I would work with some special needs people, and I would go to their house, and I would would help a special needs person cook or clean or drive them to the store, help them go grocery shopping. And this was a big deal for me, because growing up as an atheist, non-Christian jerk, I was not very kind to the special needs community. Not at all. I was very typical in, in this sort of evolutionary worldview, looking down my nose at those with special needs, and, and I, I didn't think anything of it. And so then I became a Christian, and I had to get a job at a place called Easy Living where I worked with a fellow named Chris who had special needs. And I'd go to his apartment and I'd help him clean and we'd go to the store and we'd cook meals together and he would test my patience and he would try me in all kinds of different ways and I had no idea what God was doing. But he was doing two very important things beside giving me a paycheck so that I could afford the lavish lifestyle of living in a really great apartment in Joplin, Missouri with my brand new bride, Kim. No, no, it wasn't just the paycheck. He was doing two other things. The first thing God was doing, he was preparing my heart for Clark. I was years, I was over a decade away before knowing that Clark would be in my life. And God was softening my heart for the special needs community. I had no idea that he was doing this for a purpose, but God was getting me ready so that I could help raise a little boy with special needs. And my heart was primed to love him. And I do love my son. And I will teach my son. And I will bring my son to church. And he will grow and learn to love Jesus. And it will be terrific. The second thing that job was doing was helping me to show that work ethic for a Christian is a really, really important deal. I had a non-Christian boss, but my non-Christian boss knew I was a Christian because I wore it right on my sleeve. I was still learning what was in the Bible at the time, but I'd let everybody know I was a Christian. You know how young, eager, on-fire Christians sometimes are. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to Ozark Christian College. I'm a Bible college student. And you know what my boss did? He started looking for any reason to think Jesus was dumb because of me. He started looking at me and seeing if I would trip up or if I would mess up here or there. And every Christian is going to mess up, but when you sin, you repent and you keep going. And this guy would lovingly or maybe jokingly call me man of God. And he would say, oh, here comes the man of God, man of God. And by the end of my time there, he was like, you know, you, you really are kind of a man of God. I was like, thank you. I worked hard enough so that the name of God and the teachings of Jesus were not slandered by my lifestyle. We must be devoted to God's glory and hard work. But that's not the only thing we must be devoted to. We must also be devoted to the truth. Think about verses three, four, and five. Verses three, four, and five of this chapter say that this is what we are supposed to teach and insist on. And it's important that we do. We have to teach and insist on the right thing. And it's all the teachings in the book of 1 Timothy. And so, we can be devoted to the truth. And the text tells us that if anyone does not agree to the godly teaching or to the sound instruction, then they're conceited and understand nothing. That's no good. But we live in a world where there are two primary groups who claim Jesus, but don't let it shine through. One is a group that claims devotion to Jesus, but seeks to, as the texts say, develop an unhealthy interest in controversy and quarrels about words that result in evil and strife and malicious talk and suspicion and constant friction between people of a corrupt mind. And here's how it works. Sometimes people will have an unhealthy obsession with particular words, and they will say, What the Bible really means is this, and they will seek to tell you that the Bible doesn't teach what it clearly teaches. My favorite example is Matthew Vines. Here's this guy who says that the Bible endorses homosexuality. And I think, oh, that's an interesting stretch. How'd you get to the Bible endorses transgenderism and homosexuality? And he says, well, let me tell you about this particular Hebrew or Greek word. And I said, wait a minute. You mean we actually get to have a Hebrew and Greek fight? I very rarely get to have Hebrew and Greek fights. So I'm chomping at the bit. I'm like, all right. And this guy doesn't know anything about Hebrew or Greek. He's ridiculous. But he'll come in and he'll say, well, you know, this work Because he thinks nobody listening to him knows anything about Greek. And so he'll try to tell you that this particular word means this. And he'll say, no, every time there's a New Testament admonition against homosexuality, it's not actually against homosexuality. It's actually this or that. And he'll try to explain it away. People who seek to explain away the truth of God by developing an unhealthy controversy about particular words distort the gospel. And that is conceited. But the other main way that I see people doing this is people who seek to use godliness as a means to financial gain. Oh, godliness is not a means to financial gain. You don't go into the ministry for the money, but there are some people who think, oh, going into the ministry is a great way to make money. Matthew Vine's among them. Some of these guys who come up with websites and start 501c3s and say, oh yes, I'm going to teach the exact opposite of what the Bible is, so give me tax-exempt status and people can start funding me. They live very well. It's ridiculous, but there's a whole other group of prosperity preachers, health, wealth preachers, and they'll say, here's the gospel, if you love Jesus enough, you're gonna be rich, and if you give us enough money, you'll get rich, because by giving money, that's how you get rich, and if you're sick, or you're old, or you're not doing well, just give more money to us, and then you will receive the financial blessing. Those who say the gospel is a means to financial gain don't understand the gospel. Jesus said, even the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. And so if you follow the Son of Man, you might have no place to go at night. You might be homeless. Jesus says, the greatest treasures are not in wealth, but they're in knowledge and wisdom, the mysteries of God. You don't become Christian to get rich. In fact, your devotion to truth must transcend all of these things. It is better, Jesus says in Luke 6, to be a poor, hungry, despised disciple than it is to be a well-fed, rich, beloved person who does not follow Jesus Christ. Do you really believe that in your life? Is the truth more important than anything else in your life? The truth is glorious. The truth of the gospel is amazing. The truth of the gospel tells us this. It tells us that Jesus was so rich that he stepped out of heaven to pay for our sins. The Bible tells us that Jesus paid for the church by his own blood, and the gospel is simple. Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life because he's God in the flesh in order to pay for my sins and your sins. Because we can't pay for our own sins because if we pay for our sins, that costs us everything we have our very lives. But Jesus could pay his very life for us because as God, he can come back from the dead. And by being raised from the dead for our justification, we're shown that Jesus is the way. And when we place our faith in him, rather than in money, rather than in false teaching, rather than in entitlement, we recognize that we are called to live a life of hard work but never to be saved, but because Jesus already paid for our salvation. We're called to live a life of generosity, never to pay for our salvation, but because our salvation has already been paid for by Jesus, we now get to live a life of generosity for everyone else. And because Jesus demonstrated perfect godliness, our devotion must also be to godliness. Consider verse 6. Verse 6 tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is a great gain. That's what we have to be after, godliness and contentment. Godliness is Christlikeness, and if you seek to be like Christ and you are content, that is great gain. And Paul tells us, look, if we have food and if we have clothing, we can be content with that. In fact, the Bible earlier in chapter 4, verse 8 of First Timothy, Paul tells us that physical training is of some value, but godliness has, tra- has value for all things, both in the present life and in the life to come. The most important thing is godliness, and when we have a devotion to godliness, that means we're seeking to be Christ-like, set apart from the world, and different from the world. The world wants us to look just like it, and that's why the world will say, well, change the Bible to mean this. Well, change the Bible so that you can get more money out of it, and the world would tell us to not be like Jesus, instead to be like it. No, 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 we will not be like the world, We will be like Jesus, for our devotion to him is total. And that means that in a world where greed is a big deal, we need an antidote. Greed is a big deal in this world. If you consider verses 7 through 10, we see that people who are eager for money fall into all kinds of traps. And there are some people who just want money, who've wandered away from the truth and have pierced themselves with many griefs because the love of money is the root of many kinds of evil. And so how do you deal with living in a world where we want so much stuff? Where it's hard to be content. It's hard to be content just with food and clothing because our neighbor just got a new car. Don't we need a new car now? It's hard to be content because don't we need a bigger and better house? It's hard to be content because don't we need the latest phone? It's hard to be content when there's so much stuff we want. So how do we fight against the disease of discontent and greed? Well, the answer is easy. It's a devotion to generosity. The more generous a Christian is, the less greedy a Christian will be. Generosity is always the antidote to greed. Think about what the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4. He says, In verses 11 through 13, he says, I've learned the secret of being content no matter what my circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to be hungry. I know what it is to be full. And I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And then verse 13, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. The more we are devoted to and rely on Jesus, the more we can be content with our circumstances. I don't begrudge anybody who makes a lot of money. Good, make a lot of money and then be generous with it. I don't begrudge anybody who only makes a little bit of money. Fine, make a little bit of money and be generous with it. If you're generous with a little, you could be generous with a lot. But if you can't be generous with the little you have, how could you ever be generous with a whole bunch? And there are a whole lot of rich Christians who claim devotion to him but don't follow through. They don't follow through in generosity. Now see, this is not, and don't mishear me, This is not asking for your money so that you can be right with God. And this is not asking for your money so that you can then receive even greater financial blessing. No, no, no. This is asking for your generosity so that greed might be done away with in your life. It's not to get saved. It's because Jesus has already saved you that God values your generosity. He values our generosity so that we can grow in Christ-likeness and we can continue to put away greed that so easily comes in and snares so many Christians. Why can Jesus say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich guy to get to heaven? Because rich guys love money. And you know what Jesus says in in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24? He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you're going to hate the one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Pick. You can't serve both God and money. So how can you be a rich guy and a Christian at the same time? Easy. Just be generous with your money. Don't serve money. Let money be a tool you use to further the kingdom. If you are a servant of money, you will not love God. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your treasure? That's where your heart is. You want to show me what you're devoted to? Let me see what you spend your money on. I'll see if you spend your money on good stuff or bad stuff, because that's where your heart is. And so most of us will spend the biggest portion of our money on our house because we love our family and we need a place. And all right, we're doing that for God. Good. But do we give our money to God's stuff? Now, I'm not asking for God's stuff money so that you can get rich. No. And I'm not asking for God's stuff money because I want to get rich. No, no, no. I'm asking for generosity so that you can avoid the disease of greed. Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 are very important to me. Listen to what these verses tell us. Paul says, My goal is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that you may have the full riches and complete understanding, in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Just as a little kid is going to open up an Operation Christmas shoebox and receive treasure, that they've never had before. They'll get a doll or a car or a ball or something cool for them. We open up Jesus and he's a treasure chest. And the treasure that's inside Jesus is all the riches of knowledge and wisdom. Do you love knowledge and wisdom more than money? Do you love knowledge and wisdom more than comfort? Do you love knowledge and wisdom more than entitlement. If you do, then the challenges that I have for you this week are going to be very easy. The first thing I want you to do this week, I want you to read 1 Timothy 1, 6 every single day. Every single day this week, I want you to read the whole chapter. Just read 1 Timothy chapter 6 every day. You'll read about money. You'll read about finishing the good fight. I want you to read 1 Timothy 1 every single day this week. And then I want you to contemplate. I want you to contemplate, and here's what I want you to contemplate specifically, whether you magnify God with your life. Does your life magnify or nullify God's glory? And in these three areas, does your life magnify or nullify God's glory by your work ethic, by your understanding of doctrine, and by your approach to finances? I want you to think about money, and I want you to think about, where do I put my money? Do I put my money towards God's stuff or do I put my money towards me stuff? I want you to think about your doctrine. Do I take sin seriously like God takes sin seriously? Do 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 I avoid the things that God tells me to avoid and do I embrace the things that God tells me to embrace? Or am I listening to fools with corrupt mind who have an unhealthy interest in controversy? I want you to think very hard about your work ethic. Do you work hard for the Lord? I love working here at Glendale Christian Church. It is an awesome place, and the team here has a lot of really great work ethic. And I'm excited to announce, in case you didn't get it in email form, that we're expanding our team. And that's going to be really, really good news. We're inviting, and she's accepted, so Julia Smith is coming to the staff. Julia Smith is going to be our music and media minister. And that's going to be so awesome. We've been without a music minister for like three months. And we've been a, and without a media minister for like ever. We've never had somebody really focused on that. And, uh, and, and that's really good because in this day and age, uh, people really care about media. And so we need somebody young and slick with computers and able to do that to really be devoted to the media stuff and make it awesome. Hey, whip that app into shape. Whip that website into shape. Hey, do some social media posting. Stuff that I don't know or care about. Julia, she's going to know and care about that. And we need somebody to help us with music. Now, we've got some awesome musicians, as you heard this morning. Imagine how much better things are going to be when we have somebody coordinating the teams, organizing the practices, setting the different stuff up, and helping to lead us in music. Oh, that's going to be good. And so Julia's work ethic will be on full display. And you will be able to see if by her work ethic she brings glory or she nullifies God's glory. Now we already know, we're only hiring her because she has got a great work <laughs> ethic. But you, but you get to watch and see. You get you don't have to take my word for it. You'll get to see it. And guess when she's starting? On November 21st, the great serve. So she's going to come on a Sunday where we're not even going to worship with music. And we're not even going to worship with sermons. We're going to worship through service. And so she's going to get to get her hands dirty with us as we do projects down at the ball field, as we organize some stuff out here, as we put together Operation Christmas Child boxes, as we get ready for an awesome Thanksgiving dinner for lunch, and as we go do projects for some of our people in church who need the help. She's going to get to help us. And then you're going to get to see her sing in the Christmas run. Oh, it's going to be fun. I love this church because this church pushes good work ethic. May we always be a ministry staff that magnifies God by our work ethic, and if we're not, may we always be a congregation that calls out the entitlement and says, get to it, young man, because then we need to, and then I want you to pray, then I want you to pray, here's what I want you to pray specifically, I want you to pray that God would be magnified, magnified by your devotion to service, by your devotion to sound doctrine, and by devotion to your generosity. So as you give God money, and as you give God devotion to sound doctrine, and as you give God service that goes outward, oh yeah, I want you to pray that and magnify him big time. And then lastly, I want you to give. I want you to give to God's kingdom above and beyond what you normally give financially. I want you to think about your financial giving. If you tithe, awesome. If you give money, terrific. If you go put it in those blue generosity boxes because you're a member here at GCC, great. I want you to give above and beyond. Maybe you write a check to GCC. Maybe you go shopping for Operation Christmas Child stuff. I want you to give because I don't want you to be pierced by the grief of greed. So if you want to solve greed, God values your generosity and let's be generous. Let's go to him in prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father,